I invite you to turn with me to the text for this morning. It is found in 2 Timothy 3, starting at verse 16. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who will judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I give you this charge. Preach the word. Be prepared in season and out of season. Correct, rebuke, and encourage with great patience and careful instruction. For the time will come when men will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. But you keep your head in all situations and do a hardship, do the work of an evangelist, discharge all the duties of your ministry. We continue this morning the series on worship, and we will for another two weeks, Lord willing. And the question I'm posing this morning is, why preaching assumes such a large and prominent place in corporate worship in this church and in the Protestant tradition? Another way to ask the question, or really it it boils down to two questions, doesn't it? Why is the Word of God so prominent? And why is this particular form of it, called preaching, so prominent? Because you might agree that the Word should be prominent, the Bible should be the center, but that you just read it for 30 minutes or 35 minutes. Or you might say, discuss it. Let's discuss it for 30 or 35 minutes. Or you might say, let's analyze it word by word in a historical, grammatical way. So it's not obvious that even with, if you believe that the word should assume a central place in the gathered worship service, that it should take the form of preaching. So those are the two halves of the question I want to try to address from the scriptures, why the word is so central in our tradition, and why this particular form of it, called preaching, has assumed the place that it does in our preaching. And you might, you might ask in addition, well, why are you addressing that to us? Because we're not going to preach. This is not a seminary classroom. And the answer to that question is, if you know what preaching is biblically, and if you know why then it assumes such a prominent role, you'll know what to do with it. I mean, to expose yourself to this sort of thing week in and week out and not know why it's happening is a shame. Because you sit there, why are we doing this? Why is he up there talking? And why am I sitting here quietly? You need to know why that's happening. Because then you know what to do with it. How to sit there. 
how to look, how to think, how to listen, how to pray. What is happening right now? You need to know that. A second reason would be you need to know how to assess the preaching as to whether it's happening. Is this preaching or is this not preaching? What is it? How can you make judgments about it? And the third reason you need to know these things is so that when my time is up, I'm 52 years old. Do you realize that? If I retire when I am 65, I've only got 13 years to go. Now that seems real short to me because I've been here almost 18. And they went just like that to me. (laughs) (laughs) So it's coming, folks. There's a post-piper era. And it's going to be good. The elders already dream and think and plan toward it. And we, I'm saying you've got to do this. We've got to take 10 or 15 years to work on this transition. And that's great. But it's coming. And those elders, some of them sitting in this room right now, and you need to know, what do you look for? Or you're going to leave this church someday and go somewhere else and you're going to be involved in that process. So for those three reasons at least... You need to know about what is preaching, why has it assumed the role that it has. Now, before I get into answering the question, may I ask for your prayer with regard to preaching Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. I'm going to get on a plane here in about three hours and fly to Wheaton, Illinois, and uh, preach tomorrow morning and Tuesday morning and Wednesday morning and Monday night and Tuesday night at the missions conference, that student body. And I feel an incredible weight because there you have 2,000 students who, if God were to land on that campus with his omnipotent word could change the face of the globe in the next 50 years in the cause of missions. So would you just pray that that happen? Or something like that? Would you please uphold me? I'm asking you as a family to pray for me tomorrow morning, 10.30 or so, and then tomorrow evening and Tuesday evening. Father, as I undertake now to unfold this text in part and deal with this question in particular, would you help me? Would you grant ears to hear and a voice to speak truth in the right spirit? In Jesus' name, amen. So we're taking this question in two pieces, why the Word of God is central and why preaching is central. Second, I mean first, first one first. Why the prominence for the Word of God? In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. It does not say in the beginning was the song, or in the beginning was the drama. In the beginning was the Word. God has chosen to enflesh Himself as Word, speak by Word. He presents, He reveals Himself as Word. And not only does he reveal himself as word, he reveals himself by word. Look at the text. 2 Timothy 3.16 All scripture is inspired by God. 
Now that's an amazing statement. Therein lies my vocation. I believe that. That's why I'm a preacher. If that weren't in the Bible or if that weren't true, I'd get another job. I believe this book is God-breathed so that if I can get in it and get it in me and make the sense of it plain by the power of the Spirit, that's a, that's a good cause to live for. That's worth living for. So God reveals himself as the Word and he reveals himself by the Word. When the Word is opened, God is revealed. Now that's important for worship because worship is a communion with God revealed or a response to God revealing himself in all of his perfections to us. So if he reveals himself to us as word and by word, then word is the air in which worship breathes. You can't have worship if you don't have the Word revealing God, because worship is a response to God revealed. So there's my first couple of answers to the question why the Word is central. We can say more. Worship is a response to the work of God in the world. God reveals Himself in His works, creation. He spoke. And creation happened. The works of God come by the word. Jesus, fevers fled, eyes were opened, legs were healed, dead were raised. Sins were forgiven because of one word coming out of the mouth of the omnipotent Christ. So the word of God works wonders. And wonders give rise to worship. And therefore, the Word has to be living and active if it's going to produce worship or if there's going to be worship. In fact, that's a quote from Hebrews 4.12. The Word of God is living and energetic or active, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, mind and or bone and marrow, revealing the secret things of the heart. The great work of conviction and revelation of me and you happens by the Word. So if worship is a response to the work and works of God, and those works are wrought by the Word of God, then the Word becomes essential for the worship of God. That's the same today. Go back to our text again. Verse 16. All Scripture is inspired by God. Now what does it do? And is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that, here's the result, the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. There's the word, work. The works of God in the world in Christians are begotten by the word. The word of God comes with power. It gets into the warp and woof and transforms the mind. It releases a life of transformation and obedience. And according to Matthew 5.16, people see these good works and give glory to God, which is worship. So the Word works transformation. Transformation produces change and obedience and life of good works. And good works, when they're done in the power of the Holy Spirit and all the sacrificial stuff that's involved there, cause the world to say... 
Where'd that come from? There must be a reality in your life. And I want to know more about this glorious God that's freeing you to lay down your life in love like that. Well, there's evidence all over the Bible for the fact that God does his works by his word. Psalm 1-3, he who meditates on the law of the Lord will be like a tree planted by streams of water that keeps on bearing fruit. Its leaf doesn't wither. In everything he does, he prospers. So wherever you have a strong Christian who's bearing fruit in the midst of drought, you know his roots are sunk in the word. Where everything else is dry and barren and everybody else is wringing their hands and you've got one person standing strong and full of hope and bearing fruit in love, that's no accident. You know where they're planted. They're planted by the streams of water as they meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. Or... John 17, 17, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Where does sanctity come from? Where does holiness of life come from? Where does the ability to say no to pornography come from? No to greed. No to choosing an easy evening when there's a hard evening of love available to you. Where does that come from? Jesus says it comes from the truth. You will know the truth and the truth will set you free and you will know the truth and the truth will sanctify you. So, another answer for why the word is so prominent in worship is that it is the means by which God produces his works in the world and the works cause us to stand in awe of God and worship. Two more answers to this first question. Why the word is so prominent in worship. You can't have worship where there is no Life. There is no supernatural spiritual life in the soul. That is where people aren't born of God. How do you get born of God? First Peter 1.23 You have been born again. Now those of you who have, are born again and you don't know how you got that way, I'll tell you how you got that way. And those of you who are not born again, that means... The Holy Spirit's not in you. You don't love God. You don't trust Jesus. And you have no power over sin. Here's how it can happen. You have been born again, not of seed, which is perishable, but imperishable. That is through the living and enduring word of God. People are born anew by the seed being planted of the living Word of God that bursts with life in their hearts. And a new person is born. A new creation, Paul calls it. It happens by the Word. Same thing in James chapter 1, verse 18. We are born, made new creatures by the Word of God. Well, no life, no worship. And no word, no life. Therefore, no word, no worship. Make sense? Word is the necessary element in which worship thrives. It lives like we breathe air. Worshippers breathe word. Last answer to the first question. You can't have worship without faith. Right now we are worshiping. We should be worshiping. I'm worshiping. 
I love what I'm saying. I love the God who said it. I love my job. I love what happens under the preaching of the word. I love you because I see God all over many of you. This is worship. But it isn't worship if you don't respond to the word with faith. If you kind of fold your hands and say, I don't believe that. If there's, if there's in you a wiring to resist and push away the truth of God, that's the opposite of faith, which welcomes the word of God, loves the word of God, soaks in the word of God, revels in the word of God, now and then says, amen to the word of God. Thank you. So we got to have faith if you're going to worship. Where does it come from? You know the verse I'm thinking about, right? Romans 10, 17. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. No word, no faith. No faith, no worship. Therefore, no word, no worship. It's the air we breathe in worship. Okay, I'm done with point one. The Word of God is central and prominent in a worship service because it's the air that worship breathes. God reveals Himself as the Word. He reveals Himself by the Word. He reveals Himself in His works. He gives us life. He gives us faith all by the Word. This is not an optional thing. Last question. Okay. If you're persuaded of that, you have yet perhaps to be persuaded that the form that the word should take, prominent in worship for 30 or 35 minutes, should be preaching. Maybe I've just persuaded you that we should just read the Bible for 30 minutes. Or discuss it. And by the way, princes, I say to our small group leaders, and next Sunday is small group recruitment and sign up Sunday. I say to those leaders, every time we get together on the second Sunday of the month, preaching is not enough in the life of a church. So I'm trying to persuade you that preaching is essential this morning. I also want to persuade those leaders and you, it is not enough. You must get in a small group where you rivet one another on the word, apply the, the word to each other, hold each other accountable, rebuke and exhort and correct and pray and love and bless and forgive and care for. This kind of grouping in small groups is absolutely essential in the Christian life. If you only come to this thing on Sunday morning, you are cutting yourself off from something essential in a growing, mature, strong, fruitful Christian life. Close parenthesis. Why is preaching prominent? Now let's go back to the text. 2 Timothy 3.16 talks about the inspired Word of God and its fruitfulness in producing the works that will make God glorious in the world. There are no chapter divisions in the original, as you know. When Paul wrote this, he didn't say, pause, chapter 3, 4... He didn't have any. We added those later. So just keep reading. And you come to this verse 1 of chapter 4, which is one of the most amazing verses in the Bible for solemnity. I don't know another verse like it. Not another verse like it. 
where solemn asseverations, you probably don't know that word, I didn't hardly know it either, oaths, um, where you say, um, I'll be killed if this is not true kind of thing. There's a weightiness of that sort on this verse before a certain command is given to Timothy in the church. Let's read it. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and I charge you by his appearing and his kingdom. Now you get the impression he's about to say something important. Wouldn't you? I've never read anything like that anywhere else in the Bible. I'm going to read it again. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing I'm charging you, and by his kingdom I'm charging you, preach the word. That's awesome to a preacher like me. That's awesome. That that simple command to Timothy and somebody in every church or some group of people, that that command, as simple as it is, should be introduced like that, causes me to tremble. Why? What is so big? What is so weighty? What is so heavy? That Paul should solemnly charge and do it in the presence of God and do it in the presence of Christ and call him the judge, not only of the living, but of the dead and by his appearing and by his kingdom. Why this pile up of seriousness? Like, get serious. It's because preaching is serious. Really serious. Really serious. Really serious. Can I say it enough times that that verse begins to look like what it really is? Now, in this context of preach the word, doesn't say teach, doesn't say explain or discuss. I'll get back to what the word is in just a minute. But in the context, I don't think it would be warranted to say He's telling Timothy to go to the street corner or the synagogue to do it only. See, don't conclude preaching was intended by God to do evangelism. I think it was. Oh, yes. All through the book of Acts, preaching was a prime instrument in evangelism. So bless Billy Graham and, and all the evangelists who do preaching as a means of evangelism. But... Notice the context here. It's preceded by how important the Word of God is for building up the people of God and releasing good works. And it's followed by reproof, rebuke, exhortation, patience, instruction. This preaching is sandwiched in what the body needs. And so, whether or not Timothy was a very fruitful evangelist, I think he was a timid fellow, given the context Paul exhorted him with all solemnity in the body for the sake of the body and their reproof and their rebuke and their exhortation and their patience and their instruction. Timothy, 
preach the word. So I could stop here. I could end the sermon right here and say, the reason preaching is prominent is because the Bible puts such a weighty commandment in the Bible. But I want to get behind this and ask why it does. And the next answer is because there's a biblical precedent all through Old and New Testament. Let me show you. Nehemiah 8, 6. Ezra blessed the Lord. This is the Old Testament now. Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God. And all the people answered, Amen, Amen. That's last Sunday's message. Lifting up their hands, they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord. And their faces were to the ground. Now here, listen. And the Levites helped the people to understand the law. While the people remained in their places and they read from the book of the law of God clearly, the Levites gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. So there you have a precedent for the law of God read and then perhaps they divided up in assemblies so that each Levite could go with a different assembly and there wasn't such a huge group. And they gave the sense of the law. Same thing in the New Testament. The synagogue was the continuation among Jews of this pattern. And Jesus fell into this pattern. He embraced it. His father had ordained it, and now he embraces it. For example, in Luke 4, remember the story? Nazareth is his hometown. He comes home to Nazareth. He walks into the synagogue on the Lord's day or on the Sabbath day. He takes the book of the scroll and he opens it to Isaiah. And he reads, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me. And after he's read the text, it says, he sits down. And says, today, this text is fulfilled in your hearing. And then he preached. And part of the sermon is preserved for us. And they almost threw him over a cliff because of it. So you have the law read, and you have Jesus opening and giving an urgent, contemporary, powerful, soul-indicting application that almost gets him killed. Want to be a preacher? It's very interesting that it says he sat down. Augustine, I just lectured on Augustine last Tuesday. Augustine sat to preach for 39 years. And the people stood. How do you like that? <laughs> it would serve as an appropriate control for the gesticulations of many pastors. But it would probably wear out the people. And I, I'm glad the Bible doesn't say we have to do it that way. But Jesus sat. He first read it standing, and then he sat and preached. Very interesting. Maybe I should try it sometime. Acts 13, same pattern. On the Sabbath day, Paul comes, enters the synagogue, sat down. After the reading of the law and the prophets, the synagogue officials sent them, sent to them, Paul and Barnabas, saying, Brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people, say it. So the law was read. They look around at these guests and they say, do you have a word of exhortation? 
And they stand up and they preach from verses 16 to 31 of Acts 13, Paul preaches. So my point is, one of the reasons preaching is prominent in worship today is because we've inherited the Old Testament synagogue New Testament pattern of the way it was done. Now, the last way I want to go about answering this is this. Why did they do it that way? I mean, you can say, the Bible said so, so do it. Or you can say, the Bible said so because it was already done this way in the Old Testament, Jesus did it this way, and, and, and Paul did it this way, and then the, the sermon could end. But I have one more step I want to take beneath. I want to ask, what is it about worship and preaching that makes it fitting in the scheme of God that he would ordain it to happen that way. Why? Now, to answer this, I want to read a, a paragraph from Jonathan Edwards, great friend of mine who is with Jesus. Jonathan Edwards said, God glorifies himself toward the creatures in two ways. One, by appearing to their understanding. Two, in communicating himself to their hearts and in their rejoicing and delighting and in enjoying the manifestations which he has made of himself. God is glorified not only by his glory being seen, but by it being rejoiced in. When those who see it delight in it, God is more glorified than if they only see it. His glory is then received by the whole soul, both by the understanding and by the heart. Close quote. Now, that is a very penetrating analysis of what worship is. Worship can be summed up in pairs. There's the understanding of God revealed by His Word. You must understand something. And then there is the emotional feeling response to what you understand. If you have understanding without feeling, you have a dead intellectualism. But if you try to short-circuit the understanding and hype everything on Sunday morning to get everybody feeling the right stuff, you have a baseless emotionalism. True worship always functions to tell the truth to the mind and to reach the heart and move it by the truth. Worship involves seeing the glory of God and savoring the glory of God. Teaching the mind and reaching the heart. And if either of those is missing, worship is defective. God does not get the glory he deserves. Now, if that's true, if that's a right analysis of the essence of worship, why is preaching uniquely designed by God to have such a prominent place here? The word, I said I would come back to the word in 2 Timothy 4.2. Let's come back to it and finish up quickly. The word is Caruso, famous tenor, similar to that name. But it's a Greek word that means herald. Herald. It doesn't mean teach. 
And it doesn't mean explain. And it doesn't mean analyze. And it doesn't mean discuss. It means herald. Well, what's that mean? Herald is what a town crier did before there were media. So the king has a bulletin for all the towns of the kingdom. So he sends town criers and they walk into the village and they unscroll their bulletin and they read, Hear ye, hear ye, hear ye, and everybody hears the town crier and they come. And he says, Thus saith the king, Great and wonderful things are planned for those who swear their loyalty to the throne. Those who love the son of the king will be given a great inheritance. And things like that. That's preaching. But a little child at the back of the crowd might say, What's an inheritance? And then you have to explain. Now, preaching is those two things. It is exaltation in the glorious revealed truth of God himself. And it is exposition of the meaning of that truth. So my two-word definition of preaching is expository exaltation. If you do exposition minus exaltation, you have dry, lecture-like teaching. And if you try to do exaltation without exposition, you work up baseless emotion. But if they come together the way God means them to come together, in this heralding now notice in the context, I'm not making this up that teaching is a part of this. I believe as you just go backwards from verse 2 into chapter 3, it says that the Word of God is meant for teaching and for correction and reproof and all that. And if you go forward, it says, preach the Word, be ready in season, out of season, reprove, rebuke, exhort in great patience and instruction. Preach. And be ready in season and out of season to do all these things with instruction. So it's got the expository dimension to it, instructing the meaning of the words, the text. And it's got this exalting dimension. And you can almost plot preaching on a continuum here, can't you? From those who are all emotion and those who are all explanation. And preaching, when it is done truly, is a coming together of seeing and savoring, teaching and reaching, so that there's power in the embrace of the truth, not just clarity in the explanation of the truth. So my concluding exhortation to us as a people is, let's be at Bethlehem a people of the Word. The Word read daily, the Word memorized, the Word meditated on, 
the word discussed and applied in small groups, the word obeyed in the workplace tomorrow morning, and the word preached in the center of corporate worship where together we can say to God, exulting together and expositing together, yes and amen to the truth and the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we want to be a people of your word. All over the Bible, the glorious things promised to those who are immersed in the word day and night, who meditate on it and memorize it and store it up in their hearts and live by it, the promises are absolutely staggering. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping them there is great reward. Oh God, forgive us for watching so much television and reading so little Bible and saying we don't have time. God have mercy. And grant, I pray, that in our worship, we would come ready to hear. That's next Sunday's message. How do you get ready to hear? Let's stand for the benediction. When we close, I'll be here to pray with you. Other elders will be. If you'd like to pray about anything at all, we'd love to try to share your burden. And now, Lord, come upon your people with a tremendous sense of the weightiness of the word, which is a glorious weight, a weight of glory. Not a crushing weight, not a killing weight, not a burdensome weight, but a refreshing weight of seriousness about life. And would you come under that word by your spirit and grant us to exult in all the truth of it. And all the people said, Amen. You're dismissed.